I'd like to offer a very um, interesting perspective. I live in a country where we have 1 billion firearms for 320 million people. So there are like three guns for every human being in this country. I'm a tour guide for one of the largest temples, which is located very close to my home. And when I take uh, my fellow Americans for a temple tour, one of the questions I'm asked is, you know, all of your gods have multiple weapons in their different arms. But then why is it that the Indian American community is so anti-gun? And the answer I give to them is, well, we outsource all our violence to our deities. They can handle it themselves. And as a society, we really cherish the value of ahimsa. And I think that might also something be happening that the Harappans themselves were not very warlike people. And they left the devtas and the non-devtas behind the matters for them on a philosophical level. Um, so that brings me to another facet of your writings and research. You've written very considerably on the very interesting continuities uh, between the Vedic, uh, sorry, the Harappan culture and the subsequent uh, Indo-Gangetic cultures. And I'm reminded of this book from Harappa to Hastinapur by Piotr Elstov. I first read his PhD thesis around 2005. And then he subsequently published a book where he compared the geometry of uh, the Harappan um, dwellings with the uh, structures in the second urbanization phase after 700 BC. And he found there were striking parallels. But then there was a gap of 1,200 years to explain. How did the same geometric ratios survive in North India for 1,200 years without any intervening structures? And what he said was, these are all notional ideas or notions or ideas which survived in the memory. And I personally thought that this is not a very logical way to explain the continuity uh, because what you've shown in your writings is that even when we go further down to our Shilp Shastras, none of which in their present form are probably older than 580, you find exactly the same ratios, the same orientation of the dwellings and structures. Uh, so what, uh, how do you explain that continuity? Yes, this is another extremely interesting uh, area which I have spent a little time on. Um, uh, first of all, I think Elsof, uh, his study is, is uh, nevertheless extremely important because uh, he's one of those who have established um, most um, cogently the, the parallel between Harappan urbanism and later Indo-Gangetic urbanism. So the first is of the third millennium BC, I remind our audience. The second is of the first <clears throat> millennium BC. There's something like a whole millennium gap between the two. And it was always said, as you know, by the supporters of the Aryan migration or invasion that the Gangetic urbanism had nothing to do with the Harappan one. And that there was basically a break, a hiatus between the two material cultures, right? Because of the, because the first was pre-Aryan, according to that theory, and the second is Aryan. All right. So what Elsa, first of all, who, who actually subscribes to the Indo-Aryan Indo uh, migration into India, uh, what he establishes is that there are a lot of concepts which are 
which are uh, consistent between the two urbanisms. The first, Harappan urbanism, the second, Gangetic urbanism. So I think for that reason alone, and is a lot of very deep insights, which I will not go into, uh, I think for that reason alone, uh, it's, it's very important to um, read his, his study. Now, of course, he, as you rightly say, he, uh, he says that, okay, people remember, you know, and they somehow carry the tradition. But what I uh, found when I looked, uh, and I took off from the work of Dr. Aris Bisht at Bholavira in Gujarat, near here, in the run of Kachi, in, 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 not far from where I'm sitting, about 300 kilometers away, I, Dr. Bisht found that if you look, at, and, and Bholavira is one of the rare Harappan sites where we have almost the perfect fortifications still in place, not the fortifications themselves, their foundations. So you have <clears throat> the entire ground plan, which you do not have at Mojo Daru. You do not have it also in Harappa, only partially. <clears throat> Excuse me. Excuse me. So what Dr. Bish noticed is that there were certain fascinating proportions, uh, which were very accurate, for example, uh, the complete um, length to the breadth of the city was 5 to 4, which is 1.25 if you like, or if I may say so, the length is 25% more than the breadth. And he found that this proportion was repeated in the defense, defended fortified structure, which he called the castle, with very heavy fortification walls, where uh, the rulers would have lived. And the same proportions of five to four were, uh, uh, were in operation there. And he found a few other ratios and he wrote about them. So what I did is that I um, did a slightly more complex study of the whole geometry of the Vladiva and how they could have been established. And, and then I proposed some more proportions. And then I looked at other Harappan sites where I found that a lot of these proportions were repeated there. In Mohanjodaro's upper city, I found these ratios of 7 to 5, or 7 to 4, uh, 3 to 2, 5 to 2, all of which were present in Dolavira in various structures. They were present elsewhere. And this 5 to 4 in particular is present in Mohanjodaro in a large building of the lower town, which has been sometimes thought to be a temple, possibly, we don't know. It is present in Harappa, the so-called granary, which probably <clears throat> probably was not a granary at all, also has the same ratio of 5 to 4. Lothal has general proportions of 5 to 4, and so on. So this was a ratio that the Harappans were very fond of. Now, this feature in archaeology is called a non-utilitarian feature, because it doesn't serve any practical purpose. When, you know, you build a modern whatever, university or, or, or marriage hall, you're not going to look at the proportions. You just build according to the space you have. It actually complicates the job of the builder to impose proportions. You know, it makes it more difficult because you have to manage the space around and the neighboring buildings and so on. But they did it because it was important for them. And I found there was not a single major structure in the entire Harappan world that I could see for which we had data, not a single set of uh, 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 fortifications, 
which did not have a simple proportion attached to it. That was the first part of my work. And then in the historical development, I have to be brief, uh, in the later period, the second urbanism, the Gangetic uh, civilization, as it is sometimes called, we find all these proportions again appearing. But there was something more, which is that the, these proportions could not have been applied on the ground in Dhonavira, the entire city, almost a kilometer in width, 771 meters, if I remember well, you can't apply these proportions without some measuring unit. How do you measure out your proportion? You need something, you need a kind of a unit. And this was uh, something which had been vaguely debated in some of the early writings. You will remember, for example, uh, uh, this British archeologist, what was his name? Um, uh, who, who had uh, further excavations at Mohenjo-daro and so on. Mackay, uh, um, perhaps. So, uh, so we find that Mackay, yes, it was it was uh, uh, Ernest Mackay, and we find that he's trying to make some sense of some units, but it doesn't really work, and he admits that it doesn't really work. So I found that in Dolavira, using simple rules uh, of you know calculating what could be the largest unit that gives integral multiples, integers, you know. Uh, you cannot imagine that the Harappans would have, you know, taken 112.36 times the unit. Why should they do that? They would take an integral multiple. So with this hypothesis, I calculated that the unit was 1.9 meters. And when I applied it to a lot of other structures, elsewhere in Mohenjo-daro, in Harappa, it made a lot of sense. And I have a small stati unpublished statistical study, but I need to refine it with a good statistician, and uh, which uh, also shows that 1.9 meter comes out of all the tests, three, three statistical test, tests, and that unit comes out of it. That's the only one which is common to all the results. So it looks pretty solid that they have this unit, and then the, out of it, I evolved subunits all the way down to the angular. So what I found was twofold, very, and I'll conclude on this. First of all, that the, as you have said, the, the, the Shilpa Shastra texts give us methods to work out the proportions. So there's one text, I think it is Mayamata, no, Mansara, sorry, Mansara or Mayamata, one of the two, which says that, you know, to, to have proportions of a house, you take the breadth and for the length, you add one fourth, so that will give you the five to four unit, one fifth, one sixth, one third, one half, etc. And when you work out, there's one passage, and I've quoted it in my papers, when you work out all the proportions you get out of this simple procedure, you don't need fractions. You don't even need the concept of mathematical fraction. You take the breadth and add for the length one fourth of it, one fifth of it, one half of it, whatever you want. When you work out all the proportions, they are all of them found in Dolavira without exception. That's one thing. Secondly, I was able to closely correlate the Harappan angular with the angular that emerges from Arkashastra. So there, a lot of people have done research, and the, the, the especially Mainka, the metrologist, this, the field is known as metrology, or the science of units, and Mainka had come to a, a, a 
an angula of 1.77 centimeters. And my calculation at Donavira was that the angula was 1.76. So even the value is almost identical. So therefore, there seems to be a strong element of continuity, and this is all pretty objective. I was not forcing anything. I was not even having predetermined ideas of what these units should be, and I found that everything was matching beautifully. So of course, um, uh, this and, and, and then the question remains, you see, how is this translated? Because we still have this one millennium gap. And to me, the answer is very simple. And the answer has a given, been given partly by uh, Harappan archaeologists, like Kenoya, for example, who have put the hypothesis that the whole society was organized in communities. In communities of, for example, brickmakers, craftsmen for the ornaments, builders, architects for the concepts, you know, town planners and architects for all the, the, the conceptual part, which is very strong in the Harappan town planning. And those communities, you know, would have lived on and they had, they carried on their, their, their own knowledge traditions, if we may call them that, and why not? And, and this is why that knowledge was not lost. Uh, because as you know very well, you mentioned, we don't have a strong military order visible at all in, in Harappan civilization. So, and, and the rulers in addition are totally invisible. No ruler is depicted as far as we know. There is no glorification. There is not even any building that stands out as a palace. You know, the way we have palaces in Egyptian cities where the pharaoh obviously would have lived it or stands out. There's nothing that stands out in the Harappan civilization except the, this dichotomy between upper city and lower city on which Peter Elsoff builds quite a lot. And I think I agree with, with, with what he, his discussion. So. So the rulers are invisible. There's no military order. How do, you, how do you hold it all together? How did this society function together? How was this standardization of town planning concepts, of Harappan script, of pottery styles, of craft techniques, all of it standardized, of course, with regional variations, but still standardized across the whole expense, which allows us to say there was one civilization, one culture. With regional variation, that's okay. How is it possible through the community mechanism? So whether the caste system existed or not is another huge debate and there's complete disagreement among archaeologists for the simple reason that we don't have any enough evidence to decide on that issue. So we'll keep that aside. But the, the community transmission explains a lot about the cultural continuity uh, in this field of you know, proportions, measurements, and all of the fields, the, the craft techniques were transmitted. One or two were lost on the way. Um, uh, for, uh, uh, you know, for example, um, uh, this, this uh, uh, trapezoid bricks for the wells, which would not be able to collapse inward, uh, that kind of vanished gradually. Um, uh, also, um, so there were a few things that, that did disappear. Uh, but most of the craft techniques remain, the, the ornaments. And um, uh, Professor Bibilal has highlighted this quite a bit. I have also done my, my bit in this field. And, and uh, also gestures like the namaste and so on. Uh, so uh, perhaps a tradition of yoga and meditation. This was actually originally 
discussed by American archaeologists even before Indians did. So we have enormous cultural transmission, which incidentally also is one powerful argument against the Aryan migration, because how come do, if they were able to impose their culture and language, we should see much more of a cultural break between Harappan and Gangetic, and we don't see this break. So, I mean, Jim Schaffer, the US archaeologist, was perhaps a pioneer in this, where in 1984, he said, you know, that there is no uh, break in the archaeological record, and there is no sign of any disruption, intrusion, and it is one single Indo-Gangetic, Indo standings for Indus, not for India, one single Indo-Gangetic tradition, as he called it. So he introduced the word tradition in the archaeological sense of the term. So he was quite a pioneer in defining that continuity. And we need to do more theoretical work to establish the foundations. It's not enough to say, well, we have two objects here and there, they are the same, therefore, it's not sufficient. We, we have to discuss at a deeper level. I tried to initiate some something, but there's more work to be done. Well, thank you. And now it's time for Q&A. Uh, we received a lot of questions via email and also people are asking questions online. So I'm looking at some major things and trying to club the questions together. Uh, one set of questions is around the genetical, genetic studies that we've been reading a lot about recently. Uh, it almost appears that the pendulum swings every two years. So you have a study by Dr. Bamshad, which says the Aryans are evidenced in their genes of upper caste people. Then you have a study by Kivilsid, which says the opposite. And so uh, recently there was a very controversial study by the David Reich group from Harvard. Um, and they looked at some genes taken from, uh, I think one or two individuals uh, from a grave in Rakhigari. So would you like to uh, elaborate on what's the general drift of the data and what, what do genetic studies say about the Aryan problem? Is there really an Aryan gene? <laughs> so uh, Aryan gene was one of the sensational um, elements in a, in a famous article in India today, uh, I think in August 2018, uh, which, uh, which basically was, I forget the exact title, but it was like, you know, a mortal blow to Hindutva. That was the title of the whole study. And the mortal blow to Hindutva was that something like an RN gene was identified and, and, uh, and that there was considerable genetic evidence now of migrations of populations in the second millennium BC. And then there was also the counterpoint that one skeleton at Rakhigari had yielded some DNA and that from preliminary, uh, an interview of one of those who, uh, you know, were in that study, one of the geneticists who were in that study, um, it looked like a certain genetic marker from Central Asia, which had been, and the, you know, R1A1 marker, which had been uh, identified as being the, the marker of Indo-Europeans was missing. So if it was missing, therefore, that person was not Indo-European. Therefore, the Harappans were not Indo-Europeans, and therefore, they were pre-Aryan. Now, this was such a, 
messy and uh, I don't know what you call it, uh, it was a bit of an outrage. And in that event, in September, two, three months later in Bangalore, which I have referred to, which was piloted by um, uh, one of our famous uh, biologists, Departo Majumdar, and it was an excellent event because you, for the first time you had people from two, three, four schools of thought together, very politely, you know, uh, discussing with each other. Um, during that event, I, I actually um, uh, could sense that even those geneticists who supported the, the uh, Indo-European advent in India were very unhappy with the India Today article. And they were very unhappy with it because first of all, it was thoroughly unethical. It was unethical because it was based on an interview with only one of the co-authors. And this was before any publication. And the interviewee accepted that there was only a very, uh, there was only a part of the DNA available, not the whole genome. The, the entire genome was not available. So therefore, first of all, it was very fragmentary and you are building obviously a lot on a limited amount of evidence, which is not even published. Number two, um, and this is something I pointed out, there was a fatal flaw in the whole approach. Actually, two flaws. One is common sense. We already know that the Harappan population is multi-ethnic. All the bioanthropological studies have established that there are variations in the skeletons found in Harappan cities, uh, there are about 300 of which have been examined, and there are enough variations to show that even one, one of, of them, uh, I think Pratam, I forget his name, he was an Indian bioanthropologist long ago who said that basically, you know, Harappans in Gujarat would be the ancestors of today's Gujaratis, and basically Harappans in Rajasthan would be the ancestors of today's population in Rajasthan. And he, he saw, and this was also to some extent the, the, the message of Kenneth Kennedy, a bioanthropological continuity, right? So we already know that Harappans are multi-ethnic. It is not one single physical type. In other words, we have to forget about race completely because it's absolutely illegitimate to talk about race. So since we know that, even if that one skeleton found in Rakhigari didn't have certain markers from Central Asia, what does it show for the totality of the Harappan population, we cannot extrapolate. You just as today, if you're going to take the full DNA of somebody in Haryana, you cannot extrapolate it to the whole of, of Northwest India. It would be ridiculous. Nobody would do it. So why should you do it? There was a second fatal flaw that, and, and Srinivas, you have to flag me if I exceed the time when are we supposed to stop? Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, there's 10 more minutes. Uh, 10 more minutes. I'll try to... Yeah, seven, seven more minutes. Uh, okay. But I think, you know, if you can yes. uh, give short answers, I think short probably answer. a few more questions can be asked. Okay, yeah. I, 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 have to, I have to explain this because there's so much confusion started by these genetic studies. The second Yes, yes. Flaw, I think the genetics question definitely needs yes. an elaborate answer. I agree. Yeah. Is that there is another way to... There is a way to determine whether a skeleton found belong to a person who was local or non-local. This is a technique known as stable isotope analysis. It's done with the enamel of the teeth. 
And again, to summarize, you can, and all the details are in my paper, uh, which came out of its, the, the title is Methodological Issues, something, something. And this came out of that Bangalore event. And you can determine the food that the person has eaten in his or her formative years, and whether that matches the, the composition of the surrounding soil. So Benjamin Valentine, an American archeologist, did a study of skeleton, quite a few in Harappa, more than 30. And he found that most of those who were buried were non-locals. Strangely, they did not belong to the, the, the local region. So it appears as if non-locals, maybe traders, maybe you know, through alliances across cities, were buried. Ordinary Harappans were probably cremated or disposed of in other ways. Right. And he made a study of a few skeletons in Farmana. Farmana is in Haryana, and it is just uh, 70 kilometers away from Rakigari. And he found that in Farmana also, the skeletons were of non-locals. So what about the Rakigari skeleton? We don't know. No tooth enamel analysis was made. And therefore, we do not know whether these were locals and non-locals. But chances are that they might very well be also non-locals. So the whole study was about one single Harappan of, with a partial genome, not a full genome, and who was perhaps not a local. What are we talking about? So the whole approach was totally flawed. Now, to close on the genetic thing, it is, as you said, totally in flux, and we have to wait. In fact, there is one paper in preparation. I'm not supposed to talk about it, but a few couple of scientists are authoring a paper with a lot of genetic inputs to challenge what has come out in the last two years or so. And we have to wait for this, and you know, and then the counter views, and the debate will go on. But please note that David Reich is committing several mistakes, which I've highlighted in my paper. One is to talk about Hindutva. Why should he be concerned with Hindutva? He says, you see, Hindutva wants the Aryans to be indigenous. Okay, I don't even know if the statement is true, but even if it is, why should he be concerned with that? He is implying that, you know, he wants to oppose Hindutva. He wants to remove weapons from the Hindutva arsenal. So he has a bias already built in that he wants to defeat that view that, you know, Harappans might, uh, might be somehow connected with the Indo-European streams. And that Indo-European marker, by the way, is extremely debatable and not acceptable. You cannot accept correlating a, a genetic marker with a language. How do, you, how do you build a bridge between the two? It's already known from long back that speakers of one language would, can very well belong to different ethnic groups. And one ethnic group also can have different languages, right? So to close this, uh, uh, we have a lot of inaccuracies, wrong methodologies, wrong concepts. And, and, the, and the one thing where I agree with David Rush is that we say, he says at the end of his book, recent book, bestseller, of course, he says that we geneticists are a bit like barbarians barging into that debate, you know? And he acknowledges that they have not found, they have not studied linguistics in any depth. They have not studied archeology span in any depth. 
But they come with all their science, supposedly scientific data. Of course there is science. But science is something you have to know how to interpret. You need a method. And, and therefore, yes, there are barbarians. So he said, but you know, you cannot also rule us out. And of course we cannot rule genetics out, but it's still a very young science. And it needs to clean up its methodologies, its concepts. And uh, we have to be patient and we will live through some more of this, you know, um, flux that you have highlighted. So um, we have only two minutes left. I don't know if it's time for a question. Uh, maybe I could just... Uh, yeah, Vishal, I was thinking maybe you could uh, quickly summarize uh, uh, Professor Danino's contribution to the field and maybe uh, end the session. So I think the theme of this discussion was how Harappan is India and how Indian was the Harappan civilization. And the general drift of all the data that we've seen coming and which will emerge probably is that Indian civilization does have a remarkable continuity. And probably that's why the study of the Harappan culture remains so controversial because there are groups on both the sides. Some want to emphasize the continuity. Some want to totally disassociate this Bronze Age culture from uh, you know, who, who Indians are. Uh, and so the Vedas are right in the middle. Some people want to associate relate the Vedas to the Harappan culture. Some want to relate it to um, you know, foreigners. And, you know, and, and it's all very embroiled with politics of all kinds. Hindutva, non-Hindutva, white supremacism, minority communalism, all kinds of, and, and we need to keep all those biases and ideologies out. And Dravidian, and, by the way, Dravidian ideologies also. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> we, didn't talk, we didn't talk about that. It's all right. I think people will, will understand what we mean. To, uh, so, take a look at Michel's uh, work. He keeps all those ideologies away and looks at the data from a very scientific, from a very dispassionate perspective. Um, do you have any closing remarks? Um, you see, what we should remember is that whatever the final answers will be, and I think it will take time for any answer to be accepted as final, we must remember that this is an issue, this whole Aryan issue and the whole theory of, first of all, invasion and the migration, which has caused a lot of division in Indian society. And therefore, we have to, it's not that we need to reject the theory necessarily, but at least the harm it has done is something we must address. Because we should not allow a theory about something that happened supposedly or perhaps did not happen 4,000 years ago to affect the present. And yet it does affect. If you read the declarations today, of Tamil Nadu politicians, the theory is alive and well, and it is alive in its hardcore 19th century version, right? The full racial version is still at play. So we have to understand that, that this has caused a lot of harm unnecessarily. It has been used, it was used by the colonial powers to divide India. I gave last year at the Indian Institute of Advanced Study a whole lecture on how the British used the Aryan myth uh, to, to, to create further divisions. Remember that these divisions were totally unknown in the pre-colonial era. There was no Tamil scholar up to the 18th century or 19th, early 19th century uh, claiming that you know, Tamil Nadu's 
culture existed the Vedas, and, and then the, the Northerners came and imposed their culture and language on us. It, this perspective was completely alien to Indian um, culture traditions, let us say. So, so at least this harm has to be undone, whatever the ultimate answers will be. And we should look at it as a problem of, of India's proto-history, and it does concern the foundations of Indian civilization. But there's no reason why today, uh, you know, we should be, for example, somebody should be permitted to say Brahmins are invaders. They have no right to call themselves Indians. I'm quoting Kanchan Illaya. Brahmins are invaders. They have no right to call themselves Indians. That word for word, this kind of pronouncement of extreme bias resting on the hard 19th century racial and racist form of being should not be allowed anymore. Whatever the ultimate answers will be. This is my concluding. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, that kind of defines, you know, Indian, Indian civilization as a civilization in its true sense. It's not tied to specific genes because here we have a person of French ethnic origin campaigning the Indian civilization. And here I am who has, who's of Indian ethnicity, but I have spent most of my life outside of India. And we are discussing a topic about Indian civilization. So thank you, Srinivas, very much for this session. And um, so I thank you, Vishal. Uh, it was fun. Thank you. Yes, uh, and uh, thank you uh, uh, for participating in this morning for you. Uh, I hope you can get some breakfast now, at least. <laughs> and uh, we now have uh, uh, Mana Apurva Shah and Vipul Kocher waiting uh, to start the next session. Um, so before we move on to the next session, I want to quickly read um, a small uh, excerpt uh, from an answer that uh, uh, Michelle uh, has given to a question he was asked uh, in an interview that was being done by IIT, you know, somebody at IIT Kanpur. Uh, you know, Professor Danino was one of the, I guess, distinguished uh, invitees for their, uh, uh, I think, Golden Jubilee. Uh, uh, function and uh, uh, so he was asked a question and this was his answer. It is through Sri Aurobindo that I developed interest in the study of ancient Indian civilization, its history, archaeology, etc. Because he was interested not just in spirituality, but in making sense of the Indian civilization. He wrote an extraordinary book called The Foundations of Indian Culture, in which he tried to bring out various features that have made India stick together in every aspect of life through all these ages. That was a starting point for me. I wanted to see how that would be updated since, since Sri Aurobindo's book was written almost a century ago. So this is what uh, Michelle uh, gave uh, as a reply to somebody at IIT Kanpur. And you know, it's an open book for us all to see that his life has been just this and this alone. And what we will now see in the next session is you know, what he has been doing in the last uh, uh, probably a decade, a um, little more than that, 
where he has branched out to investigate not just uh, you know one specific you know RNA invasion theory or you know archaeological aspects of that alone, but all historical aspects of Indian knowledge traditions and practices, and he's been bringing out uh, material in the form of books, uh, you know, school syllabus courses, course material, videos, and uh, doing a fantastic job. And I know there is a DVD project, you know, there's uh, something big that is, you know, uh, due to be released. So I will now hand it over to uh, Mana Shah and Vipul Culture to conduct this dialogue. And, you know, let us uh, understand what Michelle has been up to in more recent times. Uh, thank maybe, you. Maybe we can request Vipul to to initiate sure. this, this and, uh, and then we'll see how it goes. Namaskar. Thank you so much. Um, I'd like to start with uh, laying down a little bit of uh, framework to my thought process. Um, because that ties with some of the work that you are uh, you have already done, and you're trying to do more on that. And hopefully, you would understand it's also a concern uh, that uh, I've been having in terms of trying to understand, trying to make sense of things. So, uh, knowledge which is lived is typically knowledge which is transmitted and continued. If you don't live that knowledge then you know, it becomes part of uh, books. And then while it may have its uh, life in the, let's say, dried uh, realms of uh, universities, but not in the um, very uh, interesting part of everyday life. So, uh, you know, when you have that loss, then you look at um, words from outside and you try to make up for that loss. Like healthy body, you don't really, ask yourself, do I have a liver, do I have, an, do I have heart, and do I have this or that, you just live. Um, similarly, you know, when you live a holistic life, uh, living that knowledge in the tradition, you don't ask, for example, in India, we probably never asked, are we environmentalists, uh, are we having enough diversity, uh, and diversity has become such an important question today. Um, I believe for us, it was the way to live, so we never even asked a question, and probably that way to live um, happen uh, because of our uh, culture of asking questions. So essentially what I'm saying is that the uh, tradition, uh, the knowledge traditions typically have to operate within the environment of the culture. And we had that environment, that culture, uh, that philosophy, um, which was, I will, I will not use the word dharma right now, I just use the word religion to mean, you know, whatever you may want to understand that. So in our religions, for example, we have uh, uh, openness, we have this question, questioning, and we have Anikantwad coming from Mahavir, but not just Mahavir, you know, uh, if you are an Indian, um, that's how you typically live. And uh, I will just say that, you know, um, any religion, any thought process, which is not very confident of itself, tries to put an end to the question because they are afraid people will go out of their fold. But in uh, our culture, this starts from the beginning. Um, you know, you can uh, look at people telling a uh, story of uh, Ram and then, you know, the children questioning, did Ram do right thing by 
um, uh, you know, sending Sita off to um, the forest or uh, the Yaksha asking questions to Vishter or in my case, it's, you know, uh, it's something that, that was very, very interesting. Uh, in my class of teaching, uh, where I was taught about my own religion, Jainism, I was asked a question about a rat drowning uh, somewhere and a monk passing by. And would the monk actually pick up the rat uh, or save it from drowning? And I said, yes, of course, we are the uh, religion of Ahimsa. And, you know, the, the rat is dying. What could be more humane than, you know, picking up the rat? And the answer I got was, no he will actually not uh, pick up the rat from that. I was surprised. I, you know, over next 10 days, I kind of thought about it. And finally, from being a believer, I'm using the word believer very carefully, believer to being a non-believer, an atheist and so on. But, you know, the pendulum swung back. So what I'm saying is that there's a cultural context to asking questions and to the traditions. But then, of course, there are more traditions which are hard scientific uh, knowledge systems and so on. So my question is that, you know, uh, given the situation that we have in India uh, with respect to the way we are taught, um, we hardly know about the scientific discoveries of our own country. And uh, we are very proud of what the Greeks did and what the Romans did and what the English did and so on and so forth. And of course, we know almost nothing about our own people. So you uh, have been working on the Indic knowledge system and the course and so on. And I feel very happy about it. But then I have a question which I want to pose to you today, which I have never asked you before, which is that if all this environment that we are talking about is no more there, will this Indic knowledge system, first of all, of course, it is better to have something than nothing. But the question is that, you know, would we be able to imbibe it as the part of the culture continue and then, you know, begin to live it again if you are not living it? Of course, I leave that also as an open question. So with that, you know, uh, I would request you and uh, Mana to carry the conversation forward about the great work that you've been doing in IIT Delhi and otherwise as well. Uh, on IIT the... Gandhinagar. IIT Gandhinagar. What did I say? IIT Delhi. Oh, that's where I come from. So I'm sorry. You have a bias. You have a bias. <laughs> Thank you. Seeing the course, seeing the, how, how the course is going, do you think um, you... Would like to be a student of IIT Gandhinagar? You're asking me, yes, of course. <laughs> of course. That's a dream that I have uh, to be sitting at the feet of Michelle and then you know, learning from him. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, look, I, I'm going to hand over to, to Mana because she can say something about uh, uh, the, what we are doing here at IIT Gandhinagar. But I just want to make two brief remarks before. Uh, the first is that. Yes, I have been long convinced that uh, Indian knowledge systems should be part of the mainstream education. And that is one of the many failures of post-independent Indian education, that it completely blanked out the accomplishments of Indian civilization from Indian students, which is something inconceivable in, in any other country. So there is, a, there is a major issue there which I addressed Pretty early, I started addressing it uh, maybe 20 years ago. I remember that uh, uh, in, in uh, uh, 2005 with my young friend Pramod Kumar, who is now at uh, Amrita University, uh, uh, we even designed a, a survey of Indian students from the point of uh, school students 
regarding the inputs they got uh, about Indian culture. And this was sponsored by NCRT, and there were several papers which resulted out of this. Maybe one of them has been shared. So this idea, uh, this idea has been preoccupying me. And why IIT Gandhinagar? Because simply after this lecture series at IIT Kanpur, which was reasonably successful, I was invited here. And one, it so happens that there's a very remarkable uh, director here, who's still in director at present. His name is Sudhir Jain. And uh, Professor Sudhir Jain asked me about the first question when we met in August 2011 was his question, and his, it was almost a kind of an anguish, was that, you know, we're going to produce engineers by default. That's what IITs do. So therefore, we are going to do it. There's no question about that. But what more can we do, which other IITs do not do, to defend endangered disciplines? <clears throat> and this was his phrase, which I never forgot. And then I came up with archaeology, maybe a little later time permitting, I'll say something about the Archaeological Sciences Center, which we started here. And several courses of mine related always to Indian civilization in one or the other, and the course called Indian Knowledge Systems. And then I would like Mana to, to tell us something about that course and its impact and its development. Thank you so much, uh, Michelle. Um, I would be very happy to uh, convey what we are doing here. Uh, the, the efforts are quite uh, huge on, on your part, the way you are um, uh, putting all these things together. I would like to continue. I would like to start from where uh, Vipulji left that at the feet of Michelle. Actually, it's not only at the feet of Michelle, but it's at the feet of so many scholars who are joining us uh, in this course. Uh, the uh, one very special thing about this course is that uh, while other such courses at uh, uh, other institutes, um, only one faculty member or the course instructor um, deals with the course contents. Here at IIT Gandhinagar, every year um, we decide a theme and um, on that theme, um, we um, choose uh, the, the topics we want to deal with and we invite scholars, the top most scholars uh, of those fields to come here and uh, um, teach our students about uh, those fields. Um, and uh, one thing which Michelle told me um, when uh, we were discussing about this um, webinar was that um, um, I asked about, uh, I asked him what is the different, uh, uh, difference uh, in our course from other uh, such courses that are being conducted at um, other places, um, it was that uh, it, it was also that that at many places, uh, conferences or workshops or seminars are conducted uh, regarding Indic knowledge systems, where scholars just come, deliver, and go away. There is uh, no more uh, continuity uh, in um, regarding those subjects or you know going in in the depth of those topics. Um, 
but here uh, students uh, here the this 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 whole topic is brought into the mainstream that is one thing which is uh, special about this course where this course or this topic is not treated as an abnormal thing as an out uh, as an outstream thing but here students treat it as a very serious subject not something like you know in school we have some um some um like drawing or pt subjects which people only study for recreation or something like this this is not not one of those courses which you know students uh, take it as a um, you know something to to entertain their minds but here it is studied very rigorously it is taken very seriously they attend the lectures which are delivered by the scholars they uh, prepare for those lecture previously they do the readings then they on the basis of their uh, readings um, um, which are shared by the scholars uh, they attend the lecture after the lecture there is a very uh, there goes on a very interesting interaction which often uh, uh, which often uh, uh, continues even after the class where scholar the scholar is uh, surrounded by the students uh, students and they answer the curious questions it is also followed by uh, their reflection notes and projects which are um, curated by michel himself and the team uh, the students uh, take up um, poster presentations or projects in which they in each students individually deal with their subjects uh, work on those throughout the semester and finally deliver a uh, like present a, a, an essay or a poster so uh, that is another thing so one one special uh, thing is the um the getting the subject into the mainstream um uh, as a is not not an uh, not like an alternative medicine but the main thing that is supposed to be studied by an indian student indian students uh, studying about india that is one thing second thing is uh, scholars coming to scholars of those specific fields coming to deliver about those specific subjects these are two major differences why this course is special uh, in iit gandhi sir so that is that is so what ma ma mama thank you for this uh, this very detailed and very appropriate introduction to the course i'd like to add a couple of things hmm. uh, which is uh, first of all The, the the names of the teams we have followed so far yeah yeah the, yeah. Fir the first year was 2016 yeah. and uh, we call it the first edition of the course and it was a broad panorama of indian knowledge systems we had a bit of everything science and ayurveda and the arts and literature and so on. and uh, the and, and always by top scholars i'm coming to that in a minute the second year was society in ancient india what knowledge systems made it tick and uh, and um, this was also very detailed and, and we had great scholars the third well, there was a gap of one year in 2018 2019 we took technologies in ancient india because technologies were knowledge systems and we dealt with a range of technologies uh, expounded by again uh, top experts in in india 
Um, currently, we are still in the first semester technically at the IIT Gandhinagar until July. The theme is the ancient idea of India. Because as you know, we keep being told by our uh, intellectual class uh, that uh, there is an idea of India and we are drifting away from it. And you know, they're in very tragic tones. They will always uh, tell us about the idea of India. There was an ancient idea of India very much. And so we documented uh, how India as one integrated uh, civilization and whole uh, was built up. So, uh, so these are the four themes, but I also would like to add that we have a website and I could see in the chat somebody asking how the course can be joined. Um, uh, this, the, the website is IKS for Indian Knowledge Systems, IKS.IITGN for IIT Gandhinagar at, uh, sorry, .ac.in. Anyway, if you just Google Indian Knowledge Systems IIT Gandhinagar, you will come to it. And then you can register for the course. At present, it's easy because the, the, the course is now taught. The last few lectures, we will have Dr. Meenakshi Jain, Mishan, I have just shared the URL in the Very comment good. section. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Meenakshi Jain will, will be giving two lectures next week. And later on, I hope Professor Kapil Kapoor, the, the legend, legendary pioneer in Indian knowledge systems, will conclude the course. So you will have all the information on the website, how to join it. And uh, anyway, now the lectures are uh, online and therefore you can even follow the uh, live streaming on YouTube. However, one important point is that I wanted that, you see, there was a choice of inviting scholars repeatedly to give individual lectures, but then, you know, it's a bit like water in sand. Uh, all IITs, all universities, there are constantly hundreds of people coming and lecturing. Uh, it, it, it leaves only a minor trace. So I thought of organizing these scholars into one solid course. What is going to be the outcome is, is twofold. One is that we have the videos online. So if you, you will see already 2016, 17 and 19 are fully online uh, in YouTube and on also the, on the website. And we are transcribing these uh, into text. So the first year 2016, it's almost done. We have a young uh, a former student of mine uh, doing that. And uh, my objective, and, and uh, I've discussed it with Hari Kiran, who has very kindly offered his, his support, Indic Academy support in this, is to publish yearly source books. These source books will be very important reference books for future scholars, future advanced students, future teachers of Indian analysis. And because one complaint which I've heard dozens of times from a number of private universities, even recently from AICT, All Indian uh, Technical Education, AIC, All India Center for Technical Education, it's a government body of MHRD, is that we want to teach Indian knowledge systems, we want to teach Indian heritage or Indian culture, where is the material? We don't have the material and it's such a shame that after 70 years of independence, we don't have organized material. So uh, I, I, I want to take half a minute to speak about these 
uh, preliminaries. This is for school level, and these two texts to which Srinivas has alluded, these two volumes, are part of a course which Professor Kapil Kapoor organized for CBAC, but these are classes 11 and 12, and it's called <clears throat> Knowledge Tradition, uh, Traditions and Practices of India. There are about 24 modules, which are largely on the CBAC website, but it's a very messy website. So if anybody wants to have the two volumes as PDF, you write to me, I will send them on condition that they are used strictly for non-commercial purposes. That's the only condition I give. And these cover pretty much the entire range of Indian intellectual, scientific, technological, artistic, literary heritage uh, for classes 11 and 12. It's an elective course with CBSE, which unfortunately fell into limbo when <clears throat> the BJP government came to power in, in 2014, because it was made in 2012 and 13. However, I have some good news that the CBC is just now, it's a, the news is two days old, is reconstituting a committee and has asked me to head it. Uh, and we are supposed to do something about this course. We will see how far it can go. Um, <clears throat> I will not say more about this because it's very embryonic, but hopefully we'll be able to revive it and promote it. So this is for school level, but in university level, Higher education, we don't have textbooks for Indian knowledge systems. So this is one of the objectives of our course at IIT Gandhinagar and my other courses here, that we, we would like to fill this gap to the extent